So we broke this interview into segments because there was so much good content. If you are just joining us, please do make sure to go back and listen to part one. Okay, going in five, four, three, two. I'm Heidi Berkey. And I'm Rachel Goebel. And this is the Ethical Storytelling Podcast. Gotta keep it fun. (laughs) Welcome to the Ethical Storytelling Podcast Power Dynamics Series. We have three incredibly special guests for this series who come from a diversity of backgrounds and cultures. Janelle Aldred is guest hosting these interviews, and we're grateful for her expertise and questions. Um, If you haven't already, please do go back and listen to our intro episode between Janelle and I talking about why this season in particular is so important and the thought behind this series. Today, we have the honor of talking with Lisa Sharon Harper, one of the smartest women I have ever met. From Ferguson to New York, Germany, South Africa to Australia and Brazil, Lisa Sharon Harper leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She's a prolific speaker, writer, and activist, and is also the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Lisa, thank you so much for saying yes to spending time with us today. But how do the people helping avoid falling into that pit where they are, where they're helping and they want to do it? They, 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 yes. They're trying to do good stuff, mm-hmm. but unintentionally are still upholding those same power dynamics and power structures and especially comes through in the narrative. When I, when I think about it, I ask the question of... When I'm, when I'm entering into a situation like even a Ferguson, right, um, I want to ask the question, how, first of all, this whole explosive thing happened because there was a lack of recognition of the image of God, of the inherent human dignity in the people of Ferguson mm-hmm. and had been for decades, um, particularly by the municipality and the governing structures there. So... That is the most basic wrong that's there. How do we make it right? We recognize. Yeah. And we fan the flames of their capacity to exercise stewardship over their own bodies, mm-hmm. their own stories, their own communities. And that fundamentally has to start with them telling their own story and us believing them. Yeah. That's really what it is. So it, it hurts when when it begins to hurt, when somebody goes in and when they when when they mess it up or they they make things worse, is when they go in to help and they think that their help is loaning their capacity to the situation because the people don't have their own capacity. When they think that when they're going in, they're bringing their resources, and resources are actually good and sometimes really needed. But when they think that they are the savior, they are the ones who are coming in to save, but they don't realize that these people are human beings. Yeah. And I think that I think that when we get to the place, when, when we are able to get to the place, when we can recognize and accept the reality that this hierarchy of human belonging has been 
stamped into us, into our psyche, mm-hmm. into the way that we think of ourselves in relationship to the other, that we think of ourselves as more human, yeah, as more civilized, and more civilized has meant more human, right? As more, and it's not a choice. It's something that's literally been passed down to us from generation to generation, literally going back at least in in the European um, civilization, at least to 360 BC, yeah. at least to when when Plato first started to pontificate about race. Mm. And one of his students, Aristotle, 10 years later, wrote on interpretation. And in on interpretation, um, scholars believe that what, what he would have been talking about, he talked about what it means to be a full human being. Yeah. And what they believe what he really would have said is that to be a full human being would have been to be white to be male and to be able-bodied. So that's what that original, you know, Greek, Greco-Roman culture understood. They were white supremacists, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> and that was passed down from generation to generation. And I know I just said a heavy word. I know I just threw a bomb. And I know that a lot of English people are probably tipping over their tea right now. But but let me just say that I'm speaking truth. Yeah. And if you only read, you know that. And so the question is, how can we think that it's not in us? Yeah. When it's been in us for since a 360 very BC long time. at least. And that's and it's also in everybody. Everybody. It's in, it's in all of us and I think that's that's a thing that we also need to understand with the power dynamics of telling mm-hmm. stories that actually the the imbalance of who should be believed is not just in the white able-bodied male. The balance of who should be believed is also in the black female and and is in the non-able-bodied person, yes. white, you know, poor class you have to bring into it is another major, major factor mm-hmm. of who should be believed. How do we start to tell better stories that humanize people? Well, I think that, and I know I'm going to drop another word bomb here, and I don't mean to like, you know, make drop everybody it, so uncomfortable, <laughs> but hey, I'm just going to, I am a truth teller. So that's, that's, that's what I do. And you asked me to be here. So here you go. <laughs> but I think that what it is, we need to understand how you just mentioned something very important. You said it's not only the white able-bodied man, it's actually all of us. And by all of us, I actually would say all of us who have had any intersection with the act of colonization, yeah. whether or not it was the colonizer or the colonized, our minds are colonized. Yeah. In other words, our minds, we have been taught to see each other not as we are, but rather through these lenses of human hierarchy of belonging. Um, and so how do we how do we begin to, to work against that? What does it look like? It looks like looking at um, at your house cleaner, looking at your cab driver, looking at um, looking at that person, that immigrant who's just coming into your neighborhood, looking at um, at women if you're a man, looking at um, trans um, trans people if you are cisgendered and straight, looking at all humanity as equally called by God and created with the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world. What would the world look like if we really believed that? It would be different because there have been actual political um, parties that have developed and, and, and um, ideologies that have developed that explicitly said that there is a noble class, yeah, a class that is created to rule 
and there are the followers that were created to follow. And Lord, you know, power must not get into the hands of the followers, right? They're just that's not ready an, for it. They just, they're never they're be not ready. ready for it, right? We, <laughs> They'll we never we be cannot, ready. Right, but that's not true. No. What's true is that all humanity was created to exercise stewardship of the world. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because even I noticed it in myself. So I was talking to someone one day and I was like, you know, because I just talk to everyone. Like I even talk to the cleaners and I <laughs> caught myself in that moment of, well, who do you think, who do you think you are? And yes, who do you think yes, that person yes. is? And it's because mm-hmm. like I said, it seeps into all of us. So it's not just that mm-hmm. it's in the people who are doing the oppressing. It's just that their views can tend to hold more weight. Yeah, and this is one of the most interesting things about that implicit bias thing we were talking about earlier is that when they actually, you know, they they did this study, what they came to find is that 75% of all people who tested for implicit bias across the world, 75% tested positive for white bias, for bias toward whiteness. Well, and that included people whose jobs it is explicitly to be anti-racist, to do justice. So if that is the case, then that that tells us we all have some work to do. But I would also say this. This is one other piece that I think is important. One of the things we can fall back on is to say, oh, well, we're just all human. And this is just this is how humans do it. Well, I actually am not so sure. I know we're all human. I know that. (laughs) But I'm not so sure that this is how all humans do it. As I have had intersection, interaction, um, and relationships, friendships within indigenous communities around the world, I actually don't see that in Mm. indigenous communities. I see a harmony ethic at work in indigenous communities. Dr. Randy Woodley talks about the harmony ethic. Um, He's based out of Portland, Portland, California, or Portland, California, sorry, (laughs) Portland, Oregon. And um, he's written several books on this, but also when I talk to my friends, my Aboriginal friends in Australia um, or my African friends in South Africa, Black African friends in South Africa, they talk about the fact that um, that patriarchy, actually, even like men ruling over women, that is not a thing, actually, necessarily in, in the majority of their cultures until they had intersection with colonization. Yeah. And then those cultures became patriarchal because it's the comparison thing that starts the dynamic because before you have anything to compare yourself to because I was chatting to someone because so I come to America frequently I've got lots of family here but all my family and most of the people that I'd interacted with in America are all from Jamaican heritage oh wow which means that their first worldview was in a world where everyone looked like them. Yes. My wow. parents are both born in Jamaica. So again, their worldview began mm-hmm. where everyone looked like them mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. they came to the United Kingdom and yeah. then you become the minority. So their worldview of teaching us as parents is quite different. So when I've interacted with African American people, I found them to have a different lens and view mm-hmm. from people whose origins are where they were actually the majority. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, but there's also the history, right? So there's a different history of oppression in Jamaica than there was in in the United States. And so people of African descent, oh my goodness, I am right in the middle of a bunch of research on that, doing my own family history, one line of which is from Jamaica. Hello, somebody. Yay. (laughs) Right. So, but from the Caribbean and so there's there's all to do that. So what I what I do, what I specialize, I am a storyteller, actually. Yeah. That's what I do. So how do I tell story as a storyteller? Well, 
number one is, and how do I do that ethically? One is I, I, the highest value in the storytelling is not on my voice, but on the voices who experienced it, yeah. who were descendant from it, who are experts from the community, and last would be those who have studied it from outside of the community. My, so when I'm going to know what happened here, I want to talk to the people who experienced it yeah. from the underside because they have a perspective nobody else can have. And then when I'm sharing the story, my highest value, like the ultimate is for me to do pilgrimage. So I, I actually specialize in putting together pilgrimages into and through stories around the world. Yeah. And so our goal is to actually move people through the story of a people group led by people from that people group. Because it's really interesting. I saw a meme um, yesterday, and I'm a big meme fan, and it basically said, um, when people say, I'm playing devil's advocate, it's because you are not believing someone's personal experience mm. and you're too embarrassed to say that you don't believe them. And it's like, it's you, you're the devil. Mm, <laughs> and I right. thought it's actually wow. so true because when you do it the way that you're speaking of it, mm -hmm. you're actually believing people's point of view. Yes. And is part of the issue with the power dynamics that actually people think, well, if we don't tell the story this way, mm -hmm. No one's going to believe it. No one's going to believe those people in Ferguson. Mm, but see, they'll now, believe the media. What I've learned, what I've learned to do is it's actually not a question. In some ways, it's not a question of, of hierarchy in terms of top and below. It's more of a question of whose story is centered and whose story is on the margins. Yeah. And I think that the story on the margins, even in the Ferguson um, uh, uprising, the stories on the margins were those who actually experienced the oppression of the municipalities in Ferguson, including the police officers. And so justice looked like centering the stories from the margins, moving those stories to the center. And I'll tell you what, we did that. We did a pilgrimage um, about three, well, was that five months later, December 2014 brought 50 faith leaders from around the world, not sorry, not from around the world, from around the country across the U.S. Um, into Ferguson in order to move through the story of how did this happen. And we start, we did not start in, in the year 2014. We started um, back at the time of, uh, of Native American um, occupation and living on that land and, and dominion on that land, stewardship of that land. Um, and then we moved from there into the slavery narrative in St. Louis and Dred Scott decision, which happened in St. Louis. And then we moved from there through the streets and made our way to Ferguson, where we stood on the on the land where Michael Brown died. And then we went to a church where we had the leaders of the movement who were in the streets every single day, and we talked to them. So we asked them. What happened here? We asked them, how did you come to be on the street? We, weren't, we were no longer listening to the narratives that were coming to us on the, um, in the news saying that these were just agitators who came from the outside, right? That was the, that was the frame that was being mm. given to us on some news stations. No, they weren't. They literally were from that area. They literally lived there. They knew Michael Brown. Um, and so, and most of those, in fact, all, all of the people who were sitting in that room that night 
They were all changed by listening to the stories of the people who were experiencing it. So that has become one of my highest values is to move us closer and closer and closer into the people, the into proximity. And so that we hearing distance, touching distance with those who've experienced the oppression that comes from above. How do we as storytellers turn this back the right way around? What do we need to do? Well, I think that there needs to be, you know, in the same way that we have a triple bottom line right now in business, and that that third bottom line is actually an ethics bottom line, there needs to be an ethics bottom line in fundraising. And I think that there needs to be um, a way that we can say, this is an ethical way of doing it. This is actually, and interestingly, the ethical way of doing it is not just to say you've been ethical, but it actually is to achieve what your stated goal is. If your stated goal is the empowerment and flourishing of the people group that you are focused on, then the number one first need is to empower the individuals within that people group. The, and the most basic way to do that is to center them and their stories. And, and move their yourself voices. out the way. And their voices, exactly. To remove yourself from the mic. <laughs> Which is painful. It is a very painful it's thing. Painful but hey, think about it this way. You're already getting the big check. You don't need the extra power. In fact, there's another kind of power, the power of actually passing the mic. You have the mic. That's power. Pass it. You'll find that that's even, it feels it feels powerful to pass that mic. Pass it. Pass it to those who actually don't have it, who don't have access to that microphone. And yet, if they did, if their stories were told, then things could change. I, I understand that not everybody, I, again, I'm coming from a faith perspective, and not everybody who's listening um, will, but there is really an instructive, um, there's a really instructive passage for me that is critical. And we, we met with this group of pastors, about 25 pastors gathered at a pub um, uh, the second day that I was in, in Ferguson and in, in St. Louis. And we were, again, organizing them to engage. And one of the things that we did was we read this passage. It's, it's Isaiah 61. And there's this really powerful point where the text says, um, and they will become oaks of righteousness for God's glory's sake. And I always, when I thought of the they, who is the they there? Mm. The they I always thought was going to be the church. You know, the church will be God's oaks of righteousness. Um, and But actually it's not. Grammatically in the text, the they is the weeping ones. Yeah. The they is the imprisoned ones. The they is actually those who are the ones who were the oppressed, who the the that one has come to set free they will be the ones to repair the 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 devastations of many generations mm. they will be the ones so in order for that repair to happen in order for the world to be made right they have to be given the platform to do it do you think that there is something almost in us yes. that doesn't trust that they'll be better, that the people can actually, that people group can make it out by themselves with less help from us? Mm. Is that why we don't pass the mic? 
Here's the thing. I I think that, yes, I do think that's true. (laughs) I think that when it comes down to it, that we really have to do a deep examination. I mean, interrogation of our actual hearts. I think we have to ask, really ask the question, what is your intention? Yeah. What is your intention? Is your intention that your institution will get more money? Is your intention that your program will serve, quote, serve more people? Or is your intention the flourishing of the people? Is your intention to work to a day when you are not needed in that space? Because as Ian Le Van Zen said a quote, that whenever you open your mouth, you reveal the intention of your heart. Yes. So and our stories are telling the intention of our hearts, really, aren't they? They really, really are. And how we tell them tells where you open your mouth. Are you opening the mouth in front of the mic? Or are you opening the mouth to make sure that the right person gets in front of that mic? The person who has the story because they lived the story, who not only lives the story, but knows exactly what's needed because they've lived that story. Are you giving their brain the ability to work for their own, their own liberation? Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for taking time to listen and explore what it means to ethically tell stories with us. Make sure to visit ethicalstorytelling.com for more practical resources on ethical storytelling, including blog posts, new podcasts, and upcoming webinars. Please tell your friends about ethical storytelling. It's small and a labor of love, and we all do this because we want to see change. So help us spread the word with your family and friends. Before we say goodbye, we'd love to thank everyone that helped on the show this week. You all, the listeners, for tuning in. Kyle Hara for editing each episode. Lauren Ellis for web support. And music by Broke for Free. We'll see you next week.